live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We're back with a brand new series. As you mentioned, this one is going to be on the Gniza. So if you give our listeners a bit of a background, I'm sure you're not even aware of how little we know. So tell oh, us <laughs> you are. You're being modest on behalf of your listeners. <laughs> when you normally say Gniza, people automatically add the word Cairo, Cairo, Gniza. But there are actually others. Although this week we will be discussing some of the details regarding Cairo, but those parts which are unknown even to people who have visited the exhibition in Cambridge or in any of the other libraries. And normally, in terms of the history in two sentences, what is given over is that in 1896, two non-Jewish women who were academics and adventurers brought back some old Hebrew texts from Cairo to Cambridge. They showed them to Solomon Schechter, who recognized them, got very excited, and found financing in Cambridge, went on an expedition to Cairo in 1897, and brought back tens of thousands of pieces to England, some of which were over a thousand years old. And these included letters from the Rambam and other famous figures, and all sorts of documents from the Middle East. That's what people know about the Geniza. So, you know, 125 years ago, Cambridge got boxes and boxes of documents. And this is actually true, except that there is a a sort of an assumption that it was suddenly in 1896 that these texts appeared on the market and that prior to that, no one really knew they were around. And that's the part that's quite a myth. Because in the 50 years leading up to 1897, there were quite a few people who tried to get their hands on these things. And there's an interesting set of stories to be told. Because, you know, if you think that, I don't know, Wall Street traders or double glazing salesmen occasionally cross the um, moral divide, these guys are in a class of their own. The ones we will discuss today, all um, academics, one was a liar, one was a forger, one was a thief. One committed suicide when his deceptions came to light. There were a couple of honest ones, and we will mention them too. No, no, I wouldn't even bother with the honest ones. No, there's a story for them too, that's why. Okay, so a bit more background. You say that people knew about this place and these documents. How? How did people know about them? Why did they only discover them in the 19th century if there are, some of them are a thousand years old, as you say? What, what okay. is going on? So, what is a Geniza generally? It's a place that used Jewish texts are placed, a sort of a storage area, often called Seamus by Ashkenazim. And most shuls have one, a place to leave uh, worn out books. And people get very zealous and they don't just put books in there, but almost any piece of paper with uh, Hebrew writing on. And they don't stay there for long, they end up buried. 
Yes and no, that's not so clear. I mean, let's take as an example your wedding invitation. It may well have ended up in a Geniza, except, and don't take this personally, no one's interested in Mena Reisner's wedding invitation a decade after the event. You say that, I mean. <laughs> right. And for sure, no one pays money to own it. But if you'd gotten married 800 years ago, now suddenly your rubbish is gold. You know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Anywhere in the Jewish world, in, in every town, in every shawl or cemetery, uh, lots of stuff is discarded, buried. But in Europe, with the changing climate, 200 years after something's been put into Seamus, there is nothing legible left beyond which in Ashkenazi Europe, Jews are kicked out every hundred years, so their synagogues are built over and there's nothing to find. Neither of these things are true in the Middle East. It's much more stable and there's drier weather. So you've got Jews in one place continuously for a thousand years. And in the 1800s, you've probably got shawls stretching from, I don't know, Egypt to Yemen, up through Iraq to the Crimea, that have been around for centuries in the same spot. So it's very interesting what you said about the old invitations suddenly becoming valuable. I guess it's not just because of the, the fact that the paper is 800 years old, it's just also an insight into people's lives, there's halachic ramifications, there's, there's right. a whole world we get to peek so, into. So we will deal with this more next week because really... Beyond the discovery of the Geniza is the analysis of it and the publishing of it, which happened in two waves, pre-World War II and post-World War II, but we'll, we'll get there. So there's going to be interesting stuff in old Genesis around. Why the 1800s? Well, it's an era when travel and exploration become possible. If you think about Yerushalayim, the old city, all the explorers arrive then. If you know of Wilson's Arch, Warren's Shaft, under the Temple Mount, it's all it's in the 1860s. And there's another thing. You're going to be wading through dust and detritus of previous centuries. And it's only possible to do something with it if, in certain cases, you can restore it. You need technology, you need technique. And finally, the stuff in there may be hundreds of years old, but you need to sort the rubbish from the good stuff. No one knew that there were literally entire volumes handwritten by the Rumbum sitting in the Geniza because he passed away 650 years beforehand. And anyway, he wasn't the one that threw them in there. It's only when it got worn out, his children, grandchildren, who were all in Egypt. Right, so you're saying it has to be a place where the weather works and where Jews have been a long while. So that's, you pretty much narrowed it down to the Middle East. And I'm guessing you need money and expertise to restore and to look into them. And there's one other thing that today will show, and that is you need lots of good fortune. Without question, muzzle made the difference for those who made it into either fame or fortune, sometimes both, and those who became footnotes in history, uh, people you've never heard of. There is uh, a book written recently by... Rebecca Jefferson, who talks about this and about, you know, various involved uh, parties. So why specifically Cairo? Uh, I've heard it's called the Cairo Geniza. Why, why specifically You mean there? why not all over the Middle East? Yeah. 
Okay, so that's a good question. A little Egyptian history. 1862, the American Civil War is raging, and it creates severe shortages of cotton. And desperate factory owners, Mancunian and Leodensian ones, for the non-British listeners, that means people from Manchester and Leeds, they are leaders in the textile world, and they now urge Egypt to expand their cotton production. And very soon, Egypt will take up the offer. They've doubled, tripled their cotton output. And that means that Europeans arrive in droves into Egypt to take advantage of the new economic opportunities. And as a result, they will hear rumors and news which would perhaps not have made it out to Europe. So Cairo is now linked to Europe. And Cairo gets a facelift. Muslim Egypt starts in 641 CE. And Fustat becomes the government's administrative capital. But by the 8th century, large parts of it have fallen into ruin. And it's only the Christians and the Jews who are there. In the 1880s, a number of these medieval buildings, including uh, a church there near the Ebenezer Synagogue, the St. Barbara Church, and the, the shul, the Ebenezer shul itself, and the Rambam shul, which is probably 800 years old, they undergo major change and restoration. Why is that relevant? Because these structural building changes mean that all the genizas of the shuls are emptied out into the open. They're placed in courtyards. And this stuff now is visible without the dust. And the fact that there had been interest shown by dealers in buying bundles over the years got some of the locals to hide what looked like good material to sell on. One of the uh, synagogue shamosim would later admit that he buried 10 bags of manuscripts in a graveyard because he understood that there was money to be made. And they start disappearing from Cairo and slowly bits of the Geniza start circulating into Europe. But perhaps to give you an idea of before and after, we'll look at our first um, explorer and expert. An honest one. Yaakov Safir. In 1858, he is sent by the Ashkenazi community in Jerusalem to collect funds to restore the ancient Churva synagogue in the old city. He was sent to Cairo. He was sent to Cairo. He was sent to various places, but that's one of. And he recalls approaching the shawl through, you know, dark and narrow streets because this is the before. This is before anything's been done. And, you know, another visitor spoke about peering through broken windows. And it didn't look like there was anything to put in the effort for. Uh, the one thing he did see was the shawl's famous Sefer Torah, which was kept to the right of the main ark and was supposed to have been written by the biblical prophet Ezra. And he then has to persuade the nervous Shamus that, don't worry, I won't die if I open this scroll. There was a superstition connected to it. 
and he's allowed to climb up on the ladder to take a look. And the Seyfotur is in the wooden case, and he opens it while he's balanced on this ladder. And he finds that the scroll is very old, not necessarily old enough to make it to its legendary status, but it is definitely very old. And it is decayed, and he told the Shamus that it will fall to pieces if it's touched, and it's probably a good idea to keep it uh, hidden away. And as uh, Rebecca Jefferson describes it, he survives, so he's still alive, but he apparently ends up being cursed in other ways because he then gets duped by a confidence trickster during his travels through uh, Egypt. He is robbed of his luggage and his travel funds. So his journey from Egypt to India to go fundraising there had to stop in Yemen. He runs out of money. And therefore, he has to take the long way across Yemen, trekking across it, having to deal with mob attacks, starvation, plague. But the experience was actually transformative because he becomes the first Westerner who describes life and conditions in Yemen, especially the Orthodox Jewish world, uh, who had been there since the second century. Okay. He comes back to Cairo in 1863 after a long journey raising funds in India and he goes through Indonesia and Australia and New Zealand and in Cairo already there are changes. The flat roof of the Ebenezer Synagogue has been repaired but there are piles and piles of boards and building materials all over the roof. So even though he's now got permission to uh, explore, it completely obstructed his access to the Geniza. Now, remember, he doesn't quite know what's in it, but he wanted to explore. So, if only. If only he'd have managed to get through the debris. It's three foot away from him, history. Um, but, very close, but no cigar. <laughs> okay, next candidate. Abraham Firkovich, who is a Karite, meaning a part of a sect of Jews who denied the existence of the oral law. By then, it's a thousand years old. And in the 19th century, there are over 100,000 of them. Nowadays, it's far smaller. It's uh, almost unheard of today, except possibly for visitors of the old city in Yerushalayim. There's Rehov Hakroim, Karite Street, with an old Karite synagogue, which is 500 years old at least there. And it is, in fact, in that synagogue that Firkovich realizes for the first time the potential of Gnesus, because he finds old manuscripts in the basement of the Jerusalem Karite synagogue. Now, Firkovich was a bully and very deceiving, almost by his own admission. On a trip to Crimea, he describes how he came into possession of priceless manuscripts, the local Jews, he writes, were rich in old handwritten books, but they didn't have printed copies of the Chumash and Tanakh to teach. So I made an exchange. I gave them some new ones for the old ones, which, you know, what were they going to do with them? And they were damaged anyway, so who would want them? So I gave them 32 copies of the Bible printed in London, which probably must have cost him at least 50 quid and received hundreds of thousands of pounds in <laughs> return. Um, now, beyond that, he had an agenda, which was to prove that Karite Judaism was the true version. So the older the stuff that he could get hold of, the better for him. And he then visits a 14th century synagogue in the Crimean city of Kaffa, 
And according to Ferukovic's own memoir, the people in the shawl refused to let him inside because they were afraid that he would hand over their synagogue and the treasures to the Karaites. And this is an orthodox shawl. And they tell him to, you know, stay with the Karaites synagogue manuscripts, uh, treasure hunts. So he tells them that his official papers allow him to search both Orthodox and Karite synagogues. Still don't let him in. So he comes back with the police and ransacks the place. He had other methods of getting manuscripts. He would promise impoverished synagogues that he would pay to rebuild the shawl if they let him take the Geniza. And he would give them a deposit and they'd never hear from him again. You know, a lovely man all in all. <laughs> Did he take any famous pieces? Well, in terms of value, the first Firkovich collection was bought in 1863 by the Russian government for 100,000 rubles, wow. one and a half thousand books and documents. And the star of the collection, as far as fame is concerned, is the Leningrad Codex, which is still nowadays the oldest complete, almost complete Tanakh from 1010 CE. So over a thousand years old. And of course, there's no provenance of where he got the codex from. He got it in a way that would probably land him in court in the 21st century. And he gets some stuff from Cairo too. But he was never going to get the bulk of the Geniza in Cairo because he couldn't bully his way past the, the Orthodox there. He doesn't have the same uh, leverage. Okay, let's move on to our next explorer who makes even Firkovich look good. Moses Shapira. We don't know much about his early years, other than that he was born in uh, 1830 in Russia. And when he's 25, he travels with his grandfather to what was then Palestine. And his grandfather dies en route. And he is helped by a group of missionaries in Bucharest. And he undergoes conversion to Christianity. He finally reaches Jerusalem in the early 1870s. And he opens a shop in the Christian court of the old city, selling books and old fragments to foreign visitors. And probably his first manuscripts came from sort of local hiding places like uh, uh, of tomb and the burial area called the Cave of Yeshafot. Now, he becomes interested in biblical artifacts, in other words, as opposed to written material, actual pieces. This happens after the appearance of the so-called Moabite stone, um, known as the Mesha steel, which ends up in the Louvre in Paris, a very important piece. In fact, it uh, proves the narrative in Nach uh, about what the name of uh, the Moabite king and the king of Israel and the ten tribes or whatever. So he understands that this is a, a big market as well, and he attempts to sell a fake coffin of Samson, as in the biblical Shimshain, <laughs> in London. But it's exposed by Professor Adolf Neubauer after he realized that the epitaph has misspelt the name Samson and adding uh, sort of a P. <laughs> he but only had one job. <laughs> <laughs> but then, since German archaeologists had lost out on gaining possession of the Moabite stone, he knew they'd be interested in Moabite-era pieces. So he found 1,700 of these pieces, <laughs> which Berlin's Altus Museum bought for 22,000 thaler in 1873. 
And he even organizes an exhibition, or an expedition rather, for potential buyers to sites where he's got his own Bedouins burying more forgeries, which are discovered as they take this field trip. And, you know, it becomes famous enough that scholars began to base theories on these pieces. And after this lucrative deal, he's able to move outside of the old city walls of uh, Jerusalem into a villa on what is today uh, of Cook Street. And uh, side by side with this, he continues with genuine stuff, uh, ancient manuscripts, which he gets from Yemen, hundreds of them. We don't know that he stole them or that he got them, but the uh, chief rabbi of Sana'a in 1914 recalled how the community lost their books through cheap, unauthorized sales to people like Moses Shapira. But he turns back to his old past in forgery, and in 1883, he sells what becomes known as the Shapira Scrolls and is exposed as a fraud, as it so happens, by another Jew who became an apostate, a guy called uh, David Ginsburg, who uh, converted to Christianity and became a missionary. And Shapira is now shown to be a swindler and punched the political satirical magazine puts a cartoon of him on their cover page with a caricature of an anti-semitic stereotype so when bad stuff happens of course he's called a jew even though he's uh, you know been decades a christian and he fled london in despair his name was by then ruined and he shot himself in rotterdam in march of 1884 and his biography is called Kecheres Hanishbar. Very clever. Is, yeah, a brilliant play on word. It's a, it's a double entendre, because on the one hand, it means the broken pottery, which is his profession, but also it means something which is uh, broken beyond repair. So that's our third candidate so far. So to, to summarize, anything relating back to Shapiro is just cancelled as fake, or were there any pieces that remained? No. No, uh, and there is a school of thought looking into some of the stuff nowadays, but most of the artefacts as opposed to manuscripts were. I'm just curious because all your lists so far have been people who were Jewish, uh, quite a bunch of criminals or as it born sounds. Born Jewish anyway. Or born yes. Jewish, yeah. Were there uh, any, did, did any non-Jews not want to cash in on this, on this seemingly cash cow? So it's more difficult for them. Obviously, you need fluent Hebrew to speak to the Jews in the Middle East and read Hebrew and know what you're looking at when you do so, although I guess Arabic was perhaps in a way more important. But we will still get to one or two. Well, perhaps first we will talk about one of the only honest people in this affair, Rub Schlemer Aaron Wirtheimer, whose circumstances of poverty would frustrate his ambition, as he himself declares later in 1922, he says, Ani hayisi oz harishrein. I was the very first. Asher gilisi, I revealed the, the treasures, the storehouses in Jerusalem. Ani hayisi harishrein shed fasti. I was the first person to print these things. And scholars then came and vayinatzlu es mitzrayim, using the biblical term that they, you know, they emptied out Egypt 
And he says, No one remembers me and what my contribution was. Now, he's born near Preshburg, nowadays Bratislava, in 1866, and came from a long line of well-known court Jews and Rabbonim. He moves to Jerusalem, and as well as being a Talmud Chacham, he becomes an expert in the study of manuscript sources. But he's got a family, he's got five sons, he's got two daughters, and he has to find ways to support them, and also ways to fulfill his curiosity, insatiable curiosity, about ancient sources. So, at the age of 20, he publishes his first book on variant readings within the Talmud, which he compiles from books and manuscripts that he was able to consult. And he even teaches himself to read Arabic so that he can read the Rambam in its original and decipher old responsa. But in his you know, tiny apartment in Bote Ungarin, old books are just crammed in in any space not inhabited by his children. And then the Evan Ezra shul starts becoming somewhat known, and Wirtheimer acquires his own batch of writings, and he publishes based on these fragments, but his severe financial situation meant he couldn't hold on to them. So he wrote a postcard in German to University Library in Cambridge. This is this guy in Meersharim who speaks uh, quite a few self-taught languages. This is before Cambridge has acquired the main bulk of the Geniza. And he tells them he's got 13 items for sale at the cost of six pounds and three shillings. And in Cambridge, you still have the postcard and the word taken is written in there in English. But by April of the next year, he's still unpaid. So he writes another postcard and he says, you know, send us the money or return the packets because he's desperate. In December 1893, still hasn't been paid. So he says, you know, at least send the manuscripts to Dr. Neubauer in Oxford. And, you know, the cost of 67 cents, which he can't afford, might be low by Cambridge standards. But, you know, a man such as me, I, you know, can't afford otherwise. So he won't bring the manuscripts home either in a major way because of a lack of funds. And now, to get to a non-Jew, Greville John Chester, a priest from Sheffield. By 1863, ill health made him give up his job as a vicar, and he became an expert in Near Eastern Hebrew manuscripts. And in the process, he became basically a smuggler. He was somewhat of an anti-Semite, as can be seen from a letter he wrote to the newspaper in 1876 about Disraeli, and he refers to him not only as a Jew, even though those listeners who will have heard our series of scandals in Anglo Jury will know that the Israeli had long converted by then, but he refers to him quite pejoratively as well. So Chester had this manner of feigning ignorance with customs officers in every port. And no one quite understood how he managed to persuade officials that his heavy bags had nothing in but clothing when they were actually filled <laughs> with, you know, pottery and statues and even parts of coffins. Right. So th there was a law prohibiting the export of high value antiquities from Egypt, but under diplomatic cover, you could get it out. 
um, the law excluded coins and any objects discovered on private land. So there were ways around the law. And when it came to manuscripts, Chester would simply just mail them without declaring their content and take a chance that they would get there. He doesn't even register them because that could make post office officials suspect that there's something worth looking at and they could open that. He writes a letter, you know, how he sent five followed by another three and hoping that they all get there. And of course, the origins of these items is never clarified, shall we say. So he does get some stuff and sells it on often to Oxford, but he's never central enough to make it happen. And now we come, and we're at the end of our list for today, to someone who was not an academic, although he was involved in collecting and buying books and manuscripts. And he stands, I guess you could say, at the opposite end of the scale to poor uh, Schlemmer Aaron Wertheimer. He is a privileged Jew, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Nathan Elkin Adler, son of the chief rabbi, brother of the subsequent chief rabbi, a lawyer by trade, but in a family of Yechus. He has easy entry into places and introductions to the right people. And he first comes to the Middle East to represent the estate of Sir Moses Montefiore, and he's bitten by the collecting bug while he's there. But he's not an expert. In fact, you know, when he brings stuff back to England, he has to show it to experts in order for them to identify the pieces that he can't. And because of his privilege, he's given permission in January 1896 to take back a sack full of Geniza items and fragments. In fact, they gave him a Torah mantle, you know, the Pereches that you cover a Sefer Torah with. And they said to him, whatever you can fit in, you can take back for free. You know, contrast this to Rabbi Wertheimer. And he, when he gets back, will publish an article about his Geniza fragments, about Rabbi uh, Nugget. And he is very keen to move to what you might call stage two, let other people know about his treasures. And he writes an article based on a manuscript that he's brought back. And he announces that this had been part of the large mass of Hebrew and Arabic manuscript fragments, which, by courtesy of the Hebrew community in Cairo, he's been permitted to bring home. And these public indiscretions are now sort of spoiling everything, because it's now well known, or becomes well known, that there is a Geniza in Cairo, that it has items of real value, and that with the right connections, or bakshish, you can get your hands on it, legitimately, illegitimately, and the better it is known, the more sort of sharks will start circling around the trail of blood. So we're now 1896. The cat is out the bag. But by now, Sapir is dead. Furkovich is dead. Chester is dead. Obviously, Shapira is dead. And Wertheimer is not going to see a change in his financial circumstances. And there's one other thing that is needed beyond uh, money and expertise. And that is, how are you going to get it past the Egyptian government. So we're now down to the last two players in the game, Professors Neubauer of Oxford and Solomon Schechter in Cambridge, both Jewish. They will make the Geniza famous because the people we've mentioned today, even though some of them made money, they're not known of. But what's very important is that what they find in the Geniza will be surprising to them, even to collectors. 
and that's what we're going to deal with next week. We will look at things that people are not necessarily shown when they go to the Geniza because with uh, 250,000 pieces that exist, if you go for an hour, you'll see 50 pieces out of hundreds of thousands. That's going to be a tiny, tiny amount. So we'll uh, hopefully reveal some of those discoveries next week. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robbie Hirsch, for another fascinating beginning of a series. We're looking forward to hearing all about it next week. As usual, any questions or comments or feedback can be sent to podcast at jlead.org.uk and make sure to follow or subscribe to whatever listening platform you're listening to. Um, we do get comments asking, you know, when is the next one? Or, you know, has it been published this week? And if you're following or subscribing, it just makes it a lot easier. It'll pop up as a notification and you could be sure never to miss another one. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. See you next week. <laughs>